Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. Suspended. Never thought I'd be suspended. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, I was often in trouble in school. I mean, I knew the principal's office pretty well, but those are just minor little infractions. Like, to be suspended. It was right before school was about to be let out for the day. It was a big basketball game that night, and I'd forgotten my jersey and my gym bag in my locker, so I went back to my locker to get it. And I walked by this classroom, and I saw a kid in the grade above me pinning another kid against the wall. I always feel bad for the kid being pinned against the wall. He's just kind of like this awkward, like, lanky kind of guy. Nice guy. He's in the grade below me. There he was being pinned against the wall by a guy two years older. That kind of stuff really gets to me. Maybe too much. And, and so instead of, like, breaking it up and, and using wisdom, I grabbed the bully by the shirt and I just shoved him. And I didn't mean to, but he, he hit a desk and then toppled over the desk and then the desk fell. And then I said something stupid. And I turned around and my principal was nose to nose to me. Well, he too grabbed me by the shirt and he threw me down on a, on a chair. I said, sir, you just have to know that I was just, shut up. You're going to listen to me now. You're going to sit here with your forehead on the desk. And, and that night in the big basketball game that I was supposed to start in, just missed out. Suspended. And maybe I'm giving myself too much of a pass, but I feel like the punishment was severe. Like, yeah, okay. I could have handled the situation better. Definitely. But like suspension. I didn't hurt the guy. I feel like I was protecting another kid. Like, where's the grace? Where's the understanding? Where's the conversation? Sometimes we can kind of feel that way when we read the Bible, can't we? Maybe you're in the bridge reading program. We're reading through Leviticus. Good luck to us. And uh, yesterday we saw, we saw what happened to Aaron's sons. They're like, ah, that seems so harsh. A lot of the Old Testament we read through, it's like, man, that seems over the top harsh. Some people read scripture and they'll think like, okay, well, if God is real, I don't want anything to do with him because he's way too harsh. We might feel that a little bit today, but we're going to push through that feeling. And if we push through that feeling, we get to the why, what, why this feels harsh and what's really going on. And that gives us the right perspective. There's a lot of value in this. We just need to push through some of these initial feelings. I hope you're up for the task. We're going to be at the end of Acts chapter four. Acts chapter four, it's page 912 on the Bibles and the chairs. I encourage you to grab one of those Bibles. Otherwise, I know a lot of people use their phone, their tablet, with the bridge app. But Acts chapter four, end of chapter five. We've been in the series, The Story of Us. Looking at the book of Acts, and lately we've just been going chapter by chapter, though here we're just kind of slowing things down because some of these texts, we just need some more conversation. And so at the end of chapter four, because the end of chapter four, as you're going to see, really leads into the beginning of chapter five. These stories are very much connected. So fun little Snapple cap fact. When the Bible was written, it wasn't written with like verse numbers and chapter numbers. It wasn't like until 1400s that the Bible's broken up into chapters. Verses actually came later than that. This is one of those moments where you're reading through scripture, you're like, hmm, the chapter break might, I don't know, I might, I didn't make these decisions, but like, it might be a little off because the end of chapter four really speaks into chapter five. You'll see it for yourself. Let me pray. We'll jump right into it. God, we, we sit here with our Bibles open, your word in our hands, and we're ready to hear from you. Father, may we humble ourselves and, and submit to what you have for us. Today's topic is, is a tough one, one that's so easy to deflect and to think about other people who need this. But Father, may we have the humility to receive what you have for us. We are submitted to your word. May your Holy Spirit illuminate this text to us because we need that. Please speak to us for your listening. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms into Acts 4, we find ourselves outside of Jerusalem. Two fresh graves sit, husband and wife. The cause of death, unknown. The details surrounding their death, somewhat mysterious, maybe even scandalous. The story of these two graves has everyone in town talking and wondering. Some don't even want to talk about it. It's just it's too unnerving. Yet despite all of that, here these two graves lie. Fresh dirt, new stones, almost sticking up as warning signs to those who know what happened. The wild part is the story of this couple's demise starts out so beautifully. It was just weeks ago that the husband and wife were loving their church community. They were baptized as families cheered. They broke bread in their small group's home and they gathered up with the church and they lifted their hands in worship and they, they gave and they prayed and they made new friends, friends that they called family. They rode the excitement, the high of the excitement of this movement that Jesus started. How could it end like this? Two graves. I know, I sound like a Dateline special. Luke tells the story better. Verse 32 says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now, we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. This doesn't mean the church agreed on everything. It just means that the church was really good at defining what mattered. The, they majored on the majors. And sometimes that can be really hard for us today. We, get, we can be good at, you know, finding little minor things, just blowing them out of proportion and making big deals and drama. This church did not do that. I wonder how many of our lives would be a little bit more peaceful, a little bit more influential if we stopped getting disgruntled about little things. So they majored on the majors. It says, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I want to just take a time out right here because I've heard people really run with these verses. I have family and friends, and I've heard this online as well. They'll look at these verses and they'll say, hey, Scripture pushes socialism. The communism right here, nobody owned that which belonged to them. And it might kind of sound silly, but this is a real thing. Thanks to millennials. So the, there's a lot of issues with that argument. First off, historically, the church has really suffered under a lot of communism. And so it's kind of hard to say the church started that. But the main problem with that argument is this is not communism. This isn't communism. This is what we call communism. Not communism, communism. Communism comes from force. Communism comes from the generosity of one's own heart. So communism says, hey, what's yours is ours and you need to release it to us. Communism says, hey, what's mine is yours and I'm gonna work really hard to, to bless you. There's a massive, massive difference in that. See, the beauty of what's going on here is from the freedom from which it comes. This comes from generous hearts and a deep love for the community, people giving out of love for each other. But when this is like legislated or forced, it's really hard to call that generosity. Also, this text is not prescribing government laws. This text is showing the beauty of Christian community and the generosity from which it comes, not by force. Verse 36, though, is really where the narrative begins. It says, thus Joseph set up, and now we have the story, thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, and native of Cyprus. There's a few details in here that do matter as, as we progress on. But we're gonna get to know this guy better as we progress through Acts. But we're gonna introduce to him right here. His name's Joe. But the apostles give him a new nickname. Now you're going to be called Barnabas now. From here on out, we're going to know him as Barnabas. Why do the apostles give him a new name? I like to think it's because Jesus would do this. And Jesus did this with Peter, right? His name wasn't Peter, his name was Simon. But Jesus was like, eh, I'm going to call you Peter because you're going to be the rock for the church. Jesus does this with other disciples. You guys are going to be the sons of thunder. You guys lost your temper. You're going to be the sons of thunders now. And this is something that Jesus would do, just give nicknames. It was endearing, but it was also special. We do this with each other, right? Do you ever do this with your kids? Like little nicknames for your kids? I did this with mine. 
My daughter, my oldest daughter, her name's Madison. I call her Nugget because she's just like a little nugget of her mama. My middle child, her name is Nora, but we call her Skinny Mini because she's just like, she's a mini version of me, but she's very skinny. She's only one stripe on her pajamas is all that fit. And then my, my youngest, we call her Chicken Wing. No idea where that came from, but if you know Reese, it's like it just kind of fits. We call her Chicken Wings. I, you know, I do this with my girls. It's just endearing for them. I do this with my friends. Uh, one of our campus pastors is Denim. He's our, at our displays location. I call him Peter because he's just like Peter in the Bible. He's just very zealous and very passionate and just kind of crack, cracks me up. So I just call him Peter. This is what the disciples are doing. This is out of love. This is very much endearing. Say, hey, Joe, you know, we got a lot of Joes in our midst. You're going to go by Barnabas. How about that for a nickname? Encourager. Do you have that reputation? Just an encourager, speaking life into people, speaking life into their leadership, speaking life into small groups, speaking life into work, into, into church. Like if your nickname was the encourager, would that fit or would people just kind of laugh at that? It's Barnabas. He's just an encourager. But he doesn't just encourage with his mouth. He encourages with his finances. Look what he does. Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, if you are a longtime Bible reader, you might notice that something doesn't line up here. Now, if you're not a long-time Bible reader, it's, it's okay. I'll point it out. But if you're a long-time Bible reader, you might look at verse 37 and go, wait, hold on a second. I have a question. Verse 36, Luke writes that Barnabas was a Levite. Levites were a tribe in Israel that served as priests. They, um, they did not inherit land in Israel. They were priests. They were set apart. But verse 37 says Levite, uh, a Levite, Barnabas, had land. You shouldn't have land. Some commentators believe that he disobeyed. He was like a backslidden priest and bought land and then you know, felt convicted and sold it. And maybe, that could be true. But there's a clue in verse 36. Where does Barnabas come from? You can say it. Cyprus. Cyprus is not Israel. He could own land technically in Cyprus. So it's very possible that Barnabas had some land on the island of Cyprus. Maybe he inherited it from, the in, from in-laws. Maybe it's just like a retirement. Maybe he lived there, part of the diaspora. Either way, he sells that land though, and he gives it to the apostles. And this story, no doubt, spreads throughout the early church. It's like, hey, did you hear what Barney did? They're like, that guy, that guy's legit. And though Luke doesn't say it, it's natural that a husband and wife would have caught wind of this. They're inspired to do the same. Generosity is inspiring. Problem is, part of them wouldn't mind the attention that comes with it. Part of us wouldn't mind maybe getting a nickname, maybe getting our name in the Bible as well. And now Luke covers their story, chapter five. It says, but, so just that simple conjunction shows the story of Barnabas giving his land is connected to this story. So it's different chapters, but they are connected, which is too bad. because So I grew up in church and I, I heard the story many, many, many times. I was never told the story, the first part of the story. When I was a kid, the story always started here, but these stories are connected. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Great. This is where the sinister dateline music would kick in, verse two. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back part for himself, some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Big disclaimer with this. The failure here is not that they did not give the right amount. So it's not like, hey, God's gonna kill you if you don't give the right amount in your offering. Like, that's, that's not what's going on. The sin is that they misrepresented what they gave. They wanted to look like Barnabas. Hey, we're giving it all like Barnabas, the whole field. Maybe get a nickname, you know, our name in the Bible too. Wouldn't mind people celebrating us. But secretly, there was more going on behind scenes. They wanted the image of giving it all. Hey, we're good church people. But back home told a different story. See, what we're playing out here is so important. And that is God hates that image-driven part of us. And the scary part of it is, this right here, 
happens at different levels all the time. Go to church, go to small group, go to classes, go to counseling, try to look like I have everything together. Ah, oh, my marriage is so cute. Look at us. Family's so great. Look at us. Good Christians at, at home or good Christians at work. But home and work tell a very different story. Marriage is messy. We're not really honest about what's going on. There's temper flare-ups. There's gossip. There's looking at porn. There's fighting. There's bitterness. A lot of times marriages, they get to this point where the, the only time the couple can really come together is when they're cutting somebody else up. That's the only thing they can agree on is when they're complaining about someone else. But none of that's brought up in small group. None of that's brought up in counseling. None of that's brought up to a mentor. We just want to have our best foot forward. And so we lie to keep our image up. So here it's money. Often with us, it's our struggles. We're not bringing everything to the table of who we really are. And it gives us point number one, hypocrisy kills. Hypocrisy kills. Mark Twain wrote that we are all like the moon. We all have a dark side that we don't want anyone to see. And to be candid with you, this truth scares the daylights out of me. If I have an argument with Nicole, which never happens, by the way, we're so in sync. (laughs) Romance is blossoming. Our bedroom is like the Song of Solomon. You know, we're probably the cutest couple ever. No hypocrisy here. Um, But if Nicole and I, for real, if Nicole and I get into an argument, there are times where I will call her on my way to church. She's like, hey, I have to own up to this and this and this because I can't get up here on stage. And, and preach with, with that. Because I could, I could fake it. Heaven forbid, I, I get up here and I teach God's word back home. It's all unapplied and it's infested with bitterness. The scary part of it is, is we all know how to do that. We all know how to play the hypocrite. To make it worse, we live in a day and age where it's just normative to live differently than how we portray ourselves. Especially online, right? We post all of our highlights And most post-it pictures now have filters. The filters online today are getting crazy, aren't they? They're like nutty. You know what I'm talking about with like the filters, right? Like an Instagram and Snapchat. I have friends, they'll post a picture and they look nice. They'll be like, who is that? That's me. In fact, I had one friend, I was like, you got to doctor me up so that I look as ridiculous as everybody else online. So I had them doctor me. I was like, why are you looking airbrushed and sparkling? You're like, hashtag no filter, all natural, baby. I feel bad for anybody who's doing online dating right now. I, I've done weddings for couples who met online and they have great marriages. I have nothing against meeting people online, but like the filters nowadays, online dating is like playing Russian roulette. You know, one day it's like, one day, listen, I'm going to tell my girl, I already have my, my talk planned out. I just be like, be careful. You think you're going out on a hot day with Hugh Jackman, you end up eating corn dogs with George Costanza. Like it's just, <laughs> you know, online is very different. And, and it's normative. I'm not, I'm not on a soapbox. This is just normative. It is what it is. But if you think about it, we live in a world where it's not just acceptable to be fake. It's paraded. Anything real is going to stand out. And that's what God calls us to. Then and also, let's just admit, pretense is exhausting, isn't it? To live that life is just exhausting. There are those scenes, and I'm sure you find yourself in those scenes. Your friends work, definitely networking events where everybody's just kind of low-key competing, a lot of measuring going on, a lot of name-dropping, one-upping, and you leave the gathering, you're just like exhausted. It's like, man, I feel like I just left a big improv show. Everybody was actors playing their preferred character. But then, you know, you have those friends, and I hope they're church friends. They better be church friends. Where it's just like what you see is what you get. Nobody's trying to one-up each other. No competition, zero pretense. Everybody's cheering each other on we gravitate toward those people because we're drawn to authenticity. It's a very weird part of our human nature. We feel a pull to put on this persona, yet we're drawn to people who don't. 
And in a world full of fake competitors, God's people really need to stand out as being refreshingly real. Hypocrisy kills. And it's here's worth asking, where's the hypocrisy in you? We all have some hypocrisy at some level. Where do you feel a pull to withhold the real you? And to fake it. The context where you really try to impress. Or let's take this a level deeper. This one might hurt. But one way to find out, find your hypocrisy is where do you do a lot of deflecting? Where do you do a lot of pointing the finger? Where do you complain the most? At work, small group, marriage, ah, my marriage, and she just, ah, ah, ah. but not really looking at what I contribute into that. See, hypocrites tend to be critics. And this was true of G- during Jesus's time. The hypocrites, the hypocrites were, were critics. Because if I can walk around and point my finger at everything wrong with this group and that job and this church and that preacher and that person, it deflects away from the issues that I don't want to deal with. It's like the time I was invited to a, a small group. They just had a lot of issues. And the small group got very, very, very political um, a few years ago and everything was just that fever pitch. And they had all of these issues with politics and, and we, we talked to it all and, you know, toward the end of the small group, I was like, guys, are you talking about like what you guys are dealing with though? Like, no, no, they're just upset about all these politics. Fast forward a couple of years, more than half of those couples in that small group are divorced because we're just deflecting the whole time. I don't want to talk about my issues. I want to talk about all the issues around me. Where are you being critical? Where do you find yourself deflecting? Hypocrisy kills It's something that God can't let fester in the early stages of the church. It's a cancer that he must cut. And the punishment seems more than harsh. Verse three, it says, but Peter said, look at how zealous Peter is here. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? It was yours. After it sold, it was not your disposal. You could do whatever you want. Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Verse five, and Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. I've heard some people say things like, you know, we need more miracles in the church like in the book of Acts. <laughs> not sure about that one. I, I'd like this story playing out in your church. We need a new serving team. Grave diggers. Like, hey, what do you do at your church? I do parking. I teach kids. I serve coffee. I dig people's graves. Like, what? Oh, yeah, when we sing I Surrender All, people drop like flies, man. Because <laughs> people don't surrender all, and I have to dig their graves. And the, listen, I'm glad for, for my sake and for your sake that this is not normative. God is gracious with us, and it does bring us to our second point. There is grace in God's punishment. There's grace in God's punishment. Now, you might look at this and might think, hold on, Junior. We're reading the same Bible here, man. Where are you getting that? I don't see it. Like, this husband was just killed, and the wife gets killed later on. Spoiler alert. It's like, for something we're all guilty of, so where are you getting this from? I don't see any grace here. Well, the key is in the context. Context of scripture really matters. When we don't look at the context of scripture, we often misinterpret scripture, even abuse scripture. So often the key is in the context, and, and it is here. So what's the context? Well, the context is the church is experiencing incredibly deep community. People are getting along. They're encouraging each other. They're speaking life into each other. They're sharing. There's no competition. There's no pretense. There's no image. There's no, no complaining. There's like no drama. One bad apple spoils the bunch. This couple wants to be highlighted, have a good image, have, and, and to have that, they weren't honest. God knows it takes one person like that to ruin this community of 12,000 plus people and its reach for more. So God is going to remove the one bad apple to save the bunch and the future bunch. 
It's why God's punishment here is gracious because it preserves his people. It preser- it's preserving his people. To preserve something precious, it calls for drastic action. It's like, so I guess it's a thing now. I don't know if you've seen this. I, I saw it recently and I didn't believe it. But um, you know how people spend a crazy amount of money on shoes nowadays? Like some people spend like several hundreds, of, like even the thousands on shoes. But as soon as there's a mark on the shoe, the, the shoe like loses its luster. So this really poses a problem for Chicagoans, for people you know, around us, because the slush and the dirty snow and the salt really ruins shoes. And so people, especially in our area, are now wearing bags over their feet. Like this is like an actual, have you seen this? It's an actual, imagine walking to work with like Mariano's bags on your feet so you don't ruin your shoes. It's ridiculous. It reminds me of like, you remember when grandma would have her couch covered with plastic? You remember that? And the lampshades. I always wonder what those were. I was like, why are we, who's touching the lampshades? We take drastic measures to preserve that which we love. So as we read this, we have to understand this is a story of God taking drastic measures to preserve that which he loves, the church. We also have to remember if Ananias and Sapphira were true believers, the moment they died, they were in a far better place in this fallen world. They wouldn't come back even if they could. But also the cancer is cut out from the church, saving the church and its future. That's a big deal. A couple of years ago, a guy left our church very mad at me because I had said that, um, and there's more context to it, but I had said that some churches are one funeral away from a better church. I don't want anybody to die. That's not what I was saying. But in, in churches, there can be very stiff-necked, just very critical, dragging, you know, dragging of feet, complainers. And in some cases, especially in like smaller churches, that just really spreads. And you'll see a church become healthier after a funeral. It's very sad, but, but it's just true. It's just like less gossip, less drama, less competition. And we see that truth here. It's like, okay, this church is like one funeral away from a better church. And, and a few verses later, the church is now doing better than it was before. God is cutting out the cancerous attitude. And it should cause us to look at ourselves and ask, what are we spreading? Am I the first part of this story? Am I Barnabas? Just speaking life into people, into my church, into my small group, into my work, into my marriage. Or am I more Ananias and Sapphira, just very competition, image-driven hypocrite? What character do you lean more toward? Barnabas or Ananias and Sapphira? There's a lot of Ananias and Sapphira in all of us. So then why doesn't God kill us? Well, again, context. This is a very pivotal moment for the church. The church has yet to duplicate. It's like one big mega gathering that will soon give birth to more. It's a very, very critical moment for the church. If they become unhealthy now, they will replicate that toxicity. It's like those times, um, there's instances where doctors will really work with a patient before they get pregnant, it's like, hey, we got to get you healthy. Otherwise, if you get pregnant like this, you're going to hurt your body and you could hurt the baby as well. So we're going to work to get you healthy. Essentially, that's what's going on here. God is, is not doing this as much out of anger as much as he is out of love for his church. Verse, end of verse five says, and great fear fell upon all those who heard of it. You ever see someone deal with heavy consequences and it sobers you up? Like at work, your, your buddy gets called into HR and you're like, oh, kind of doing the same thing. So maybe I should like button things up and do a little bit better. I had a coworker in high school who was really pushing drugs on me and I wasn't considering it. Despite how I look, I said no to drugs. But I'll be candid with you. After many conversations with him and hearing about the fun he was having, I was like rethinking my stance. Like, okay, it sounded fun. I love adventure. I'm, I'm a very, very curious person. It's like, okay, that sounds like a good time. He ended up dying of an overdose. And it's like, it sobered me up quick. It's like, okay, I'm definitely not going down that road. That's kind of what this church is feeling. It's very sober to, to the consequences. Verse six, it says, the young men rose and wrapped him in, up and carried him out and buried him. 
After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Verse eight, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Now notice the grace here. Peter's giving her another chance, but she will not ditch this image that she clings to so tightly. Verse nine, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And look at verse 11. We see this again. And great fear fell upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Notice verse 11 is a repeat of verse 5. If you write in your Bibles, this is worth like circling verse 11 or verse 5, drawing an arrow. Repetition matters. When something is repeated in Scripture, it likely means this is important and you should dig into it a little bit more. And here Luke is communicating a big truth. God's punishment is gracious because great fear fell upon those. It sobered his people. It preserved his people, but it also sobered them. Now today we read this, this these rep- repeated verses, and we read these, these verses with like more negative connotations, more negative undertones. Especially if maybe you grew up in a legitimately abusive home. You had that real fear of that parent because you know, they would get drunk and they would hit you. And my heart breaks for you. I just want to say that's not this. The word that Luke uses for fear here is the Greek word phobos and its first definition, the first definition of phobos is profound respect for someone or something. But the reason that Luke uses the word fear instead of respect is because there's a real healthy fear that drives this respect. So often we can be guilty of personifying God down to like this this level of disrespect. And, and maybe we don't mean to, it's, it's unintentional. We don't mean to disrespect him, but we'll call him like, you know, I, the big guy, the big guy upstairs. We're kind of flippant with who he is. But anytime in scripture, we, we, we see somebody that catches a glimpse or a small taste of God's glory or his power, even just one of his angels, they are utterly terrified, quickly sobered about how great God is and how small they are. Have you ever felt that, just how small you are? I'll be honest, like, I kind of love, love that feeling, that feeling being so small and insignificant. I remember feeling the feeling when I was, I was scuba diving off the coast of Florida. I was getting deep sea um, certified. And um, I, I've only, at the time, I'd only dove off um, shore. And this is my first time jumping off a boat. And it became kind of rough conditions. And rookie mistake, I, I did not put my flippers on before jumping in the water. Because I didn't want to walk around on the boat, you know, like this, like an idiot. So I was like, I'll just put my flippers on when I'm floating around in the water. And so I, I jump off, I had my flippers but then like the, the wind really picked up. I started, the waves were hitting me. The boat was, was moved pretty far away. And there was this real fear of like, I'm not gonna make it back to this boat. I can't really swim. I don't have my flippers on. I'm carrying my equipment. And just this feeling of being so small as being tossed like a, a, a rag doll, real fear. When I got back on the boat, it's like, I felt like this, this good humility of like, oh my goodness, I am nothing. You ever, you ever feel that when like, maybe you see like a big storm rolling? That's my favorite thing to do with my wife. Watch a storm rolling. It's the loud cracking of thunder, the, the flashes of lightning and the, the wind blasts. It just reminds me like, I am powerless. Or you ever drink in like a starry sky, observing the flickering stars over the, ex- the, the, the vast expanse of black nothingness. And, and you're, you're looking at p- possible planets that, are, that dwarf the tiny planet that you're on. And you're just like, man, I'm nothing. I'm so small. God knows you're at your best when you're sobered to his greatness and his might, that you will live differently when you realize how small you are and how great he is. This is why, and this sounds weird, but this is why there's a, 
an element of fear in our worship, of just fearing how great God is, to come before the maker of all things, to approach the throne of God Almighty. That's why we raise our hands in humble surrender. It's like, wow, you are everything. And I bring nothing but humble surrender. That God knows this is our most healthiest posture to take. I had my daughter a couple weeks ago in, in church. Usually she's in bridge kids, but she's getting to, toward middle school. And she sat in the front row with me and, and she noticed like a bunch of us, including her dad, raising her hands during worship. And, and on the way home, she's just like, dad, why do people raise their hands in worship? And, and the, the illustration I use is like, it's like a kid. You ever see a kid running up to daddy? Daddy, I want you. Pick me up. Pick me up. Like that, that's kind of how we are with God. It's like, I'm nothing. I need you. I need you, God. It's, it's, it's humbling. And that's what this church is feeling. It's just this good sobering that's very healthy for them. Because case in point, a few verses later, they're growing numerically again. So you have addition by subtraction. God powerfully removed the problem, sobered them up. Now they're ready to grow. You are at your best when you wake up every day with that sober reality of how great God is, how majestic is his name in all the earth. And it's that, it's that perspective that positions us for growth. I know, I know God seems so harsh here, but his punishment is gracious because it preserves his church it sobers his people to position them for more. And may we not forget, not far from those two graves, sat an empty grave. His punishment is gracious because Jesus took the full punishment. I'm going to be extra blunt here for just a second, but I hope you're gracious with me. Who are we to consider God harsh when he took our place? When God left heaven to enter our brokenness and be tortured for us. Who are we to say he's harsh? We mess up our lives and we forget who God is and who we are. He is great. He is mighty. He's the author of life itself, designer of creation at the macro level, sustaining the cosmos that goes beyond the reach of our imagination. He's also the coder of the micro level, designing and writing DNA, connecting cells and inventing life itself. He tells lightning where to strike. He points the wind in which direction to blow. He's the orchestrator of migrations. He holds the, the depths of the sea. He spins planets and maps their orbit. And here we are, tiny creatures on the earth, but dust. It's a wonder why God would even give us a chance to take one breath. Yet he breathes life into these fragile lungs and somehow with his breath in our fragile lungs, we find the audacity to defy the almighty creator. He can and he should snuff us into eternal torment. Yet he takes on flesh to pay my sin and your sin, our sin against him. Psalm 40 says that he lifts us from the miry clay of our sin and he sets our feet on solid rock. And then we stand there and we act like we have it all together. Like we somehow picked ourselves up by our bootstraps, measuring up who's cleaner than who, working so hard at our image and looking like we got things together, holding on to these critical spirits. I mean, come on, who are we? Who are we to not be utterly honest about how gross we are? I don't know. I, with the right perspective, I look at the story and I don't think, wow, how harsh. I look at the story and I think God can do whatever he wants. And I deserve far harsher. I deserve more than death. I deserve hell. Thank God for Jesus. 
There is grace weaved into God's rightful punishment because Jesus took our full beating. And when we forget that, when we forget how great he is and we forget how little we are, we become these hypocritical critics, these selfish consumers, these deadly gossipers, these puffed up, image-driven, miserable people. And somehow, even in the grossness of that sin, the Almighty still loves us and beckons us and desires us and invites us to surrender again. Surrender again. I'm sorry, this isn't the hard story. It's a sad story, yeah. But this is a story of grace that hopefully sobers us too to the reality of who we actually are and who God actually is. And it's that perspective that positions us for growth. Only when you let go of your pretense can you grip the greatness of God. Only when you embrace your brokenness do you find his power. And only when you see the nothing in you do you find the everything in him. This is why we drop the image and we drop the masks and we drop all the finger pointing. We lead out as authentic people, real about who we are, just trying to apply this book anywhere we can. And may we live sobered to the greatness and the might, but also the goodness of God Almighty. And that changes everything. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.